Well, good morning. Thank you, Barry and the worship team. Isn't it a blessing to be reminded each week what worship means and the preaching of the word as an extension of our worship to a God who is eminently worthy? Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. 492 years ago, last month in 1527, a horrific wave of death was sweeping across the continent of Europe, being ushered in by a flea and rodent-borne plague known as the bubonic plague, also called the Black Death. All told, it killed one-third to a full one-half of the continent of Europe. And as frightening as the deadliness of this plague was, it really was its unpredictability and its uncertainty that made it most fearful. You see, the plague could sweep into a village, and within 24 hours, the first victims would fall. It could spread by the briefest touch. Well, 10 years prior to this bubonic plague sweeping across Europe, and more specifically through Saxony, a former Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, you may have heard that name, was nailing his 95 grievances against Rome to a church door in Wittenberg, sparking, of course, in part, the Protestant Reformation. Well, here 10 years later into that Reformation, this black death is descending upon Wittenberg. And Luther now has a young son, one year old. And his wife, Katerina, was pregnant with their daughter, Elizabeth. Of course, knowing that the plague was descending, the wisest thing to do was to flee the area. And in fact, it was often complete anarchy and and chaos in villages when it was even rumored that the plague was coming. Well, now with the Black Death about to descend upon Wittenberg, the head of the college where Luther lectured wisely urged his professors to leave. But Luther refused. He reasoned that it was well and fine if if most would leave, but if all the clergy fled, who would care for those that remained? So Luther, with the support of his pregnant wife, And with a one-year-old child to care for, they opened their home as a hospital to the infected as the Black Death descended and struck Wittenberg on August 2nd, 1527. This was a horrific time for the Luthers. Family, friends, neighbors died in their home. They nearly lost their one-year-old child who miraculously recovered. Sadly, their daughter Elizabeth died only eight months after she was born, likely due to Katerina being so weak in her body from battling the plague while she was pregnant. But not only did Martin Luther witness the death and despair of the plague in his own home, not on TV, not on the news, but he would daily receive reports and letters from German Protestants that were being killed or exiled for following his teaching. Amidst all of this, soldiers under Charles V were laying siege to Rome as well, carrying massive implications for all of Germany. Political unrest, social upheaval, 
Natural disasters and spiritual chaos surrounded the Luthers on every front. It no doubt felt like their world was burning down around them. It was during this time of unrelenting chaos, crisis, and spiritual confusion that Martin Luther picked up his quill. And at the top of a piece of paper, he wrote, Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott. A mighty fortress is our God. And what became the anthem hymn of the Reformation was written in the bowels of a world that was being shook and crumbling under every conceivable foundation. What some may not know is that Psalm 46 was used as the heartbeat for this enduring hymn and has even become known as Luther's Psalm. Indeed, the only certainty that Luther possessed for these 10 years of his life was the truth of God's word. All other mountains were being thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Graciously, Heavenly Father, I pray we come this morning to this inspired and timely text with eyes to see and ears to hear. These times of great uncertainty, you are turning the mirror inward on your congregation and calling to those who have been trusting in the temporary. We pray that all hindrances to us hearing your word would be removed, that the seed would fall on good soil. Speak to us through your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, written at the most, written at most of the top of most psalms, we often are told either the exact time or sometimes the exact event that inspired that psalm's writing. While we don't have that for Psalm 46, most believe that it was likely written in response to the miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem under King Hezekiah. You can read about this in 2 Kings 18 and 19 and 2 Chronicles 32. But in this reading, the Assyrian king has stormed through Judah demolishing towns and villages, terrorizing the entire nation, taking over 200,000 residents and their possessions as prisoners and bounty. Now, I imagine confusion reigned in the, as the Lord's hand seemed nowhere to be found, and the Assyrians scorched the earth of Judah completely unchecked. And finally, crisis arrived for King Hezekiah as 185,000 Assyrian troops surrounded Jerusalem with the intent of killing all inside the walls. Unless God supernaturally intervened, utter destruction awaited the inhabitants inside. Yet in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the crisis, in the chaos, King Hezekiah prayed. And God answered. And in one night, the angel of the Lord annihilated the Assyrian army, killing all 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. This background, this historical context, helps us to begin grasping the gravity of this psalm. And perhaps showing us what Martin Luther saw in this incredible song of ascension that cries out for the supremacy of God for all, over all that concerns us and the intimate help that surrounds his children. 
This strong fortress of protection and refuge for his children was the music that moved the sons of Korah to write this psalm. And it's that music that's to saturate us as well as we read. So let's begin in verse 1. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We see two attributes of God on display here. He's all-powerful, and he's everywhere. And showing us just how powerful, the psalmist is making an introduction for us in the usage of the word God. They could have used the name Yahweh, which is the most common name for God in the psalms, showing God as the active and and self-existent one. Or maybe El Olam, highlighting God's loving kindness, or El Elyon. Emphasizing God's sovereignty is the most high. But instead, they use Elohim, meaning strong, almighty. But it goes deeper than that. You see, the word Elohim for God, it's what's known as an intensive or a majestic plural, meaning he's not just strong, he's very strong. And he's not just mighty, he is exceedingly mighty the same usage in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, exceedingly mighty one, created the heavens and the earth. It's that power that the psalmists want us to see. These are the goggles that they want us to put on here as we're reading the rest of this psalm. No less than the creative power and strength that created the world by the word of his mouth is the one who is our refuge and strength This morning, notice in verse 1, God, God what? God is, meaning present tense, every moment of every day, the exceedingly mighty God is our refuge, a place of safety, a place that is secure. One commentator describes it as an unassailable fortress and an unconquerable castle beginning to see what Luther saw in this psalm. God is the mighty fortress. Think, if you will, of maybe a a movie scene or imagine a moment in your mind where you see a, a beleaguered soldier or a family that's being pursued and chased by enemy hordes. And up ahead, you see the tower. And they're lowering the drawbridge to receive the ones desperately seeking protection. And with the enemy almost to them, they cross the drawbridge and the moat. And with a loud thud, we sigh in relief as the drawbridge is lifted and the door closes safely behind them. Let me ask you something. In this movie, in this scene, this soldier, this family, were they walking or were they running? I bet they were running. They ran into the only place they could find shelter from the chaos that resided just outside the walls. And once that drawbridge is lifted, there is an impenetrable moat surrounding that fortress, unassailable from the outside. And only the king may order the drawbridge to be lowered. And listen, saints, nothing touches the inhabitants except that which the good king allows. Trouble will strike the believer. We have God's word on that. But it didn't sneak over the moat, and it didn't scale the wall. 
He's our refuge. Yet the good king allows and even sends trials and troubles to his children. Notice back in our text here, God is our refuge and strength. He is our strength. In the most difficult of circumstances, when the plague would kill your family, when 185,000 troops tell you you are going to die in the morning, whatever the tragedy or trial of seeming impossible odds, God is our refuge and strength. You know, the world's wisdom would tell you that the hero lies in you. I think I remember a song like that. The strength lies in you. The world will tell you in the face of tragedy, what? To be strong. No! The hero does not lie within us. And I don't want to be strong. I want God. I want Elohim. We need His strength. It's made perfect in my weakness. God forbid we should be strong in ourselves and independent. In fact, some of us this morning are too strong. We're too strong. If we're walking in our own strength, we've missed it. We've missed it. The psalmist says, he is our strength. And that is good, good news. I know myself. I know my weaknesses, my failures. If it were my strength, we can just pack up the show. The self-assured, the headstrong, are in fact without hope if they persist. When we were born again, we exchanged our strength for His. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The encouragement continues in verse 1. A very present help in trouble. He is not just present. Listen, saints, He is very present. The psalmist is telling us in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the situation that just will not resolve, he is never more present than he is right now. Very present. All powerful, all present. Soldiers on the battlefield are often used to five-star generals sending down commands from a distant headquarters or from afar off in the Pentagon. They're powerful, but they're distant. What if that general was sitting in the Humvee with those troops? What if he's in the tank? What if he's in the foxhole? He was with them. What confidence would these troops have with the commander of all military forces right beside them? The psalmist says he is a very present help. This word for help is beautiful. Ezra. Ezra. This is a help that if it did not come, we would certainly be overrun. There's a desperation in this kind of help, in this cry for help. And while I I risk making a big thing out of a small word here, the psalmist says he is a very present help in. In. In our trouble. This is an intimacy of help. You know, the psalmist could have said that God is over our trouble, which he is as well. But he says that God is in our trouble. God is in the boat. And though the heavens often feel like they're brass, 
Like your prayers are hitting a concrete wall and the situation or the trial continues unabated. The spiritual season is a dry land. God is in that trouble with you. He is in that pain. And he's in the crisis, the chaos, and the confusion of our times. But notice with me, and I don't want to miss this miracle that's just just floating on the top of this verse. The God of the universe, who, who cannot even look upon evil, who can't be in the presence of wickedness, can dwell with us in the boat, in our troubles. How is that possible? We who deserve his wrath because of our sin, who were separated from God by that sin, and now he gets in the boat with us, with me? How? Why? What is this mercy? You know, saints. You know. It is only through the cross of Jesus Christ and through the ministry of reconciliation that we have with God through that sacrifice. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's a miracle. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, entrusting to us, the message of reconciliation. This is good news beyond our comprehension this morning. Our situation, our status before being regenerated by God's sovereign hand was more dire than 185,000 troops about to slay us. We had less hope than the inhabitants of Jerusalem being dead in our sins, but for a supernatural act, death was certain. For them... And for us, we know that God is our refuge and our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. Well, that's verse 1. That's quite the introduction the psalmist gives us on who our God is. We all have our lenses on, our goggles on. And we need this kind of introduction we need to be reminded of his exceeding power, Elohim. And do you know why? Because verses 2 and 3 are about to come upon us. Notice in verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea... The psalmist carries us along from his introduction and reminder of who God is, saying, now, if this is true, if verse 1 is true, then we will not fear. And he's not simply telling us not to fear because I told you so. He's telling us not to fear because God is the very strong one. He is the exceedingly mighty one. Elohim, there is a mighty fortress for our rescue, and for our safety. And so he makes a declaration. We will not fear. Though the earth should change. Some versions say, though the earth gives way. There is a tectonic shift that is happening here. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, we're talking about an earthquake. 
Historically, the psalmist had likely witnessed just such an earthquake. You know, the mountain range of Mount Carmel ends at cliffs that overhang the sea. And he likely watched in terrific awe as huge chunks of Mount Carmel were shook and thrown into the Mediterranean Sea below. But here's what's interesting. Jeremiah and Isaiah, they all represent Mount Carmel as symbols of beauty, of fruitfulness, of prosperity, of happiness, of fulfillment. This being crumbled and thrown into the sea. These mountains to us represent everything that is stable in our lives. Everything that is constant, unchanging. You can always count on it being there. That person, that job, that home, that church, that which you know you can count on is shook and thrown into the sea. Imagine living in a a picturesque mountain home with a, a beautiful mountain peak framed perfectly in the window. So it's the first thing you see when you wake up. It's always there. So one day, you wake up, and it's gone. There's nothing in the window. You couldn't believe it. Surely your eyes are deceiving you, and yet it's gone. The psalmist is showing us that that which we believe to be certain in our life, it rests on a shadow, just as our life is a vapor. And this isn't to cause us to despair and and stop trusting anyone or anything because it's all so temporal. This is meant to reorient and realign who and what we are placing our trust in, even though that mountain might slip into the sea. That uncertainty should cause us to cling to our Savior even closer. It's been said that I don't know the future, but I know the one who holds the future. So what exactly happens when a mountain is thrown into the sea? Notice in verse 3, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Water is one of the most destructive elements on earth. Anyone who's ever been to a pool has seen the effect when Big Bubba does a running cannonball. Let me tell you, the water of that pool doth roar and foam. It becomes displaced from its proper borders, shall we say, soaking everyone around. So not only is the stability of life gone, the mountain being thrown into the sea only now to displace even more destructive elements into our lives with roaring and foaming water flooding all of the plains around. Saints, can I tell you, if your feet are on dry sand right now, meaning you're not in a trial, it's only because you've either just left one or you're heading into one. But I want you to look to the person to your right and to your left. One of them is going through a trial right now. So your feet may be dry, but your neighbor's gasping for air. Well, I wish the psalmist offered some relief at this point. The earth is shook. The mountains mountains were thrown into the sea. Some of us are up to our neck in roaring, foaming water. What else could possibly? 
second part of verse 3. Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. What happens in an earthquake? It creates tremendous and destructive waves and tsunamis causing the water to what? To swell. And those waves now come back and they pound and they batter the pieces of mountain that remain, crashing into the open cracks, splitting it and destroying it. Ezra, help! Ezra. But wait. Verse 4. There is a river. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Think back to the Assyrians. Back in the ancient world, if an enemy was to lay siege to your city, they could simply cut off the water supply to the city. And you'd either die inside the walls or you would come out and surrender. But if you had a water source flowing into your city, you could survive that siege indefinitely. King Hezekiah has built just a tunnel, had built just a tunnel. They're there. I've walked through them myself. If you're claustrophobic, I wouldn't recommend it. But these tunnels ensured a river with many streams was flowing into and making glad the city of God. Outside the mighty fortress, the waters roar and foam. The waves crash and the mountains crumble, but there is a river. There is an unending source flowing that the enemy cannot touch with every supply we need to endure. The grace for today is given. The times of refreshing for the mundane of life is renewed. And the inexhaustible thirst for gladness is quenched. But the Lord of the river The Lord of the gentle stream that supplies our need is also the Lord of the roar. He is the Lord of the foam and the earthquake. He is the Lord of the tsunami. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't want to meet God outside of Christ. You don't want to meet the king outside the walls. There is only one fortress for safety that has been made. Access is only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you are outside the fortress this morning, run. Don't walk. The Bible says today is the acceptable day of salvation. Many have built their own fortresses out of religiosity, good works, family expectations, teenagers, But inside those walls are pride, lust, greed, idolatry that breeds deception and hopelessness. Abandon that putrid castle. Repent and run. Don't walk. But notice the encouragement to those whose joy is in the Lord. Verse 5. Verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. 
God dwells in the midst of her. He dwells here in the holy habitation of the Most High. This is talking about the Temple Mount, where the temple and the Ark of the Covenant were, where God allowed his presence to rest, to be in the midst of his people. God will help her when the morning dawns. The night is passing. The terror that comes with blackness is fleeing from the morning sun. As sure as the sun will rise in the east is our hope and assurance that this help will come. The general tells his troop once again, he is with them. You'll notice how the psalmist now, he draws our gaze back outside the castle. Look, look back outside the fortress. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. This immediately took me back to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Then he will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Let the politicians plot. Let Black Lives Matter and Antifa rage. Our trust resides in verse 7. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Meaning, the Lord Almighty is with us. He will defend, he will guard his people and his city. And how do we know that he will do this? How do we know that he is the God that will perform this? How can I trust what you're saying and what I'm reading? Come. Verse 8, come. Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. This command to behold is in all three tenses. Current tense, you have 185,000 rotting corpses outside your gates, O Israel. I will protect you. Past tense, look what I've done on your behalf and in the name of my glory. Psalm 66. Psalm 66, 5 and 6. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. And future, in the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will also bring desolation. He speaks and the earth melts. Peter later writes that the elements will indeed melt with fervent heat and the heavens will pass away with a great roar. But whether past, present, or future, verse 9, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God is making wars cease. 
But this is not a harmonious, voluntary peace. This is a restrained and a forced peace. A peace that but God be the enforcer of it, the nations would still rage, and the unending wickedness of men's hearts would once again rise up to make war on his people and his city. The restrained peace. Therefore he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns their chariots with fire. Therefore, you will, verse 10, you will be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You'll notice quotation marks around this verse. The psalmist is no longer speaking. The Lord speaks. We often see verses to be still and know, maybe on a flowery desk calendar with a nice peaceful picture behind it. Anyone have one of those? Yet James Montgomery Boyce writes that this command is not advice to lead us to a contemplative life, however important that may be. It means rather, lay down your arms, surrender and acknowledge that I am the only victorious God. And while the command to be still is certainly comforting to his people, the comfort here is that God will one day bring desolation to the nations and people that defy God, who wage war on his name and on his people. Therefore, people of God, be still. Cease your worrying. Worry is functional atheism. Knowing in your mind that God exists, yet acting and living as if no one's on the throne, no one's home, no God exists that cares or will perform his word. Worry is functional atheism. This command to be still and know is both a promise and an ultimatum to raging nations and to the wicked at heart. This is a command to surrender. Surrender now, because desolation awaits those who would make war against the Lord of hosts. Verse 11. Once again, for the second time, verses 7 7 and 11, he is the God of Jacob. Jacob was a liar. He was a cheat, a deceiver. He stole his brother's birthright and he fled like a coward. Until he met God, he wrestled with God, was made to surrender, bearing the mark forever of one who had been touched by his maker. All that call for surrender has not changed, past, present, or future. The gospel by its very nature is a call to surrender. It is a call to lay down your arms. The rebellion that filled the heart of the peoples in Psalm 46 fills the hearts of some listening. Those who have quietly chosen the pleasures and the comforts of life over being a slave of Christ. Christians acting as if they weren't actually bought at a very high price. You still belong to you. Those who hold to a form of godliness 
but deny its power. Those who would backbite or gossip or sow division in the body. Scripture says this is rebellion. If the gospel message that Jesus Christ came and lived a sinless life, sacrificing himself on a bloody cross and rising again, that dead men might live, is not sweetness in your ears today. If your heart did not leap for joy within you as you heard those words, it doesn't matter how long you've occupied that pew or that chair, repent and be reconciled to God. For those that are safely in the fortress of Christ this morning, let us be encouraged. You know, it's said that when a particular trial or challenge would confront Martin Luther, he would often look over to his helper, his attendant, and say, Come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. Such was his confidence in the truths of this psalm that so filled and strengthened this reformer's battle-weary heart. And I pray it will do the same for us this morning. Let's pray. Gracious and most merciful Heavenly Father, you have given us a place of shelter today, a place of rest where you dwell with your people. I thank you that you have wrestled with us, You called us to lay down our arms that we might have a safe place of refuge. We heed the command this morning to be still, to surrender, that the world may see your power and your goodness towards an undeserving people. All this we pray in the matchless, very powerful, and exceedingly almighty name of Jesus. Amen.